East of Jerusalem, on the road to Jericho and the Dead Sea, lies the desolate Judean wilderness. The warm Mediterranean air flows this way, but lingers in the rolling hilltops to the west, dropping its moisture before pouring down into this rain shadow, a narrow strip of land parched by dry winds. You can find water here, but you must go down to get it. Steep canyons drop into the earth, and to find refreshment, you would have to descend, and the way is perilous. If you came this way in springtime, the sparse seasonal dew gives way to stubbly grasses. It's good for grazing sheep, but never enough to satisfy their hunger. And if you wait too long, the heat of the day is withering. On the other side, should you make it through, you'd find the Jordan River Valley, green and full of life again, at last a place to rest. This is the wilderness. This is the land between lands. This is the barren land like the land from which God brought new life at the creation. This is the land of Isaiah's visions, where the grass and flowers grow and where the grass and flowers fade. This is the land where the scapegoats went to die on the great day of atonement. This is the land of John the Baptist, subsisting on locusts and preaching repentance. This is the land where we find Jesus, walking from Jordan, where he was baptized, toward Jerusalem, where he would be crucified. For St. Matthew, the act of fasting in the wilderness is heavy with history, ripe with meaning. The wilderness is a place of preparation, a place for intercession, a place to wait on God, and a place to rest from your labors. After crossing the waters of the Red Sea, God led Moses and the people into the wilderness to the mountain, where Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights prior to receiving the tablets of the law. After their profound experiences of Passover and the miraculous bread from heaven, the wilderness is where the Israelites grumbled for food, provoked God's patience, and fell into idolatry. After the Israelites sinned, Moses went on the mountain again, fasted for 40 days and 40 nights to intercede between God and the people, after which God relented from his anger. King David fled into the wilderness to fast and to wait, wait for God to deliver him after his lapse into adultery and while his own son hunted him in open rebellion. Elijah fled for his life into the wilderness after shattering the religion of Baal, where he fell to the ground in exhaustion and in a refusal to go on, and yet where he was comforted, sustained, and renewed before he too fasted for 40 days on the road to meet with God before the last leg of his journey. The wilderness is where identities are revealed. And it is for this reason that Jesus chooses the wilderness as the setting for his battle with the devil. He becomes an icon for all of God's people, taking on his shoulders their history and their destiny. 
But where the people of Israel failed in their own wilderness test, where even Moses, David, and Elijah faltered in their own callings through disobedience, infidelity, and exhaustion, Jesus proves his obedience. He proves his faithfulness. He proves his strength. His victory over the devil was a victory to fulfill Israel's calling through perfect faithfulness to the word of God and to the covenant. But the fight here is even more profound because their temptations, these temptations, are not only the temptations of a small people in the ancient Near East. They are rather the temptations of all of us. We see them knotted up together in the first temptations in Eden where the devil offers food, offers spectacle, offers power. St. John would later name these the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The church terms them the temptations as arch enemies of the soul, the flesh, the world, and the devil. The fight of Jesus, regardless of what you term these things, shows him to be the faithful son of the Father, brings the covenant to fruition, and brings relief and the hope of return to the exiled children of Adam and Eve, to us all. The remembrance of this momentous victory, the remembrance of Christ's victory in the wilderness, comes to us this morning with a message of comfort and of demand. We take comfort in the gospel lesson because it makes clear to us that the best possible Lent has already been observed. Christ's fasting and conquest over temptation is more complete than we could imagine. If there had been a fuller way to be tempted, a fuller way to overcome, Jesus would have done it. In his victory, Jesus shows us that endurance of temptation and hardship is a necessary part of carrying out our callings as Christians. That the temptation is set between Jordan and Jerusalem underscores that between baptism and death is the trial of the wilderness. The Lent of Jesus is a gift to us because it teaches us faithful obedience to God, consistent reliance on the word of God, surrender to the plan of God despite the allure and the apparent easiness of other callings. But the Lent of Jesus is even more a gift because it reorients our own practices of Lent so that we start to see them as proceeding from his own practice. But the gospel is also a demand for us today. Because Christ's Lenten obedience is the standard for our obedience, the strong humanity into which we are called. Our faithfulness needs to become his faithfulness, and our call to progress is not complete until we get there. Comfort and demand. But Easter is a gift, not a reward. Easter will come not because we conducted a thorough or perfect enough Lent to earn it. This is good news, because even three days into the fast, we might be feeling our resolve falter. We may have already lapsed, or relaxed, or felt the powerful and perhaps even embarrassing pulls of pleasures and temptations on our devotion and resolve. We might be going through the motions, or decided simply, that we're just not participating this year. We might feel weak, or we might not feel much of anything at all. 
If so, we have the faithfulness of Jesus in the wilderness to consider. The best Lent has already been performed with total obedience and total self-giving by the only one who has never needed Lent. His Lent is an example and an invitation. His Lent demands our response. But again, the good news is that Easter is a gift because Lent is a gift. Jesus gives us his Lent along with his Easter. And when, we, when he takes our lives and brings them into his, and then infuses his life into us. And so today, as we commune with Jesus in our Eucharist, we accept the gift of a perfect Lent to make our little fledgling Lents more whole. And as our fast becomes his fast, so our wilderness time becomes his wilderness time. Our denials of self and our gifts of self become like his. Our sufferings become his passion, and our death becomes his death. And then, at the last, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. The gift of Easter begins today with the gift of Lent. And it is already closer now than when we first began. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.